I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, and I actually have some with me tonight. I just want to try to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Okay, you take one part great earnings, another part tremendous skepticism. You add in low inflation and you end up with the Dow gaining 197 points, the S&P up 0.94%, and the Nasdaq advancing 0.89%. House of pleasure. It's a rally that's entertaining. It's, it's astonishing. It's, it's astonishing everybody. It's astonishing everyone who believed we were headed for the worst of all possible worlds. Instead, the worlds collided, and now the bulls are back in the driver's seat. What's driving this rebound? It all started with three days in tech, the stock market equivalent of three days in May. I'm talking about April 25th, April 26th, and then May 1st. Why those days? There when Facebook, Amazon, and Apple reported, and everything began to turn around. Let's set the scene. Tech had been taking a beating, right? Remember? It had been taking a beating for more than a month going into Facebook's quarter. And the beating centered around these three names. I remember how bad it was because I took a vacation right before earnings season, and I was singing to myself the song Do Re Mi from Sound of Music. Specifically, I was singing Fa, a long, long way to run. Fa being Facebook, Apple, and Amazon. The run being the gauntlet of earnings that the market had to go through before it could mount any kind of rally. Going into Facebook's quarter, it seemed ridiculous that the company would have anything good to say. Every day, there were new revelations about how Facebook had utter contempt for users' privacy. At the time, with the drumbeat of the hearings and investigations, endless bad press, the consensus was that people would leave Facebook and Instagram in droves. Every day, it seemed like some new celebrity with lots of followers left the platform because of the company's transgressions. The newspapers in particular were relentless, and Congress took its cue from print when they raked CEO Mark Zuckerberg over the coals. There was only just one problem with this story. Zuckerberg went to the Hill, and he apologized. He expressed sorrow, not contempt. He actually sounded human. At the same time, you could feel the collective consciousness of America start to puzzle over what exactly this scandal was about. I mean, who was this Cambridge Analytica anyway? What did they do? Did they get me to vote for someone? Did they embarrass me? Did they have, have me say something I didn't want to? Did they harass me? Despite the endless headlines, the whole thing became kind of uh, boring. So, still, when Facebook reported, 
Wall Street was all set to hear about how this scandal had hurt the business. They figured the company was a wounded tiger that needed to be put to sleep. But in reality, Facebook's business actually accelerated versus the previous quarter. Accelerated. Turns out there was no slowdown, and management made it clear the business remained strong in the month of April, right into the teeth of the hearings. Now, you have to understand, the short sellers had built up a considerable position in Facebook ahead of the quarter. And after these blowout numbers, the stock surged higher. It almost felt like the mother of all short squeezes for a $700 billion company. Money managers went from hating Facebook to loving it pretty much Overnight. How about Amazon, which reported the next day? Remember, Amazon stock had a tough time in April. Why? Because President Trump decided to go after them for allegedly ripping off the post office. More likely, maybe he was just mad at CEO Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post, which hasn't been exactly flattering with his coverage of this White House. Either way, the president's endless Twitter tirades made the stock kind of tough to own. Then on April 18th, Amazon announced out of the blue that it had 100 million Prime members. Amazon doesn't typically tell you how much, how many members they have. They don't tell you much about membership at all. So this was a pretty big deal. The stock spiked momentarily. But then as we got closer to the quarter, it went right back down. Then Amazon reported, and again, we got a monster blowout. Just a gigantic upside surprise. With the company earning $3.27, Wall Street only expected a buck 25. I thought it was a typo. I thought Amazon made a buck 27, not 327. Nope, the stock then opened up 120 bucks. As it happens, the president's peak had driven a lot of weak hands out of the stock. The only people still in it were the Hale and Hardy. The sellers just seemed to have disappeared. That's just how explosive this rally really was. Finally, there was the biggest surprise of all, Apple's quarter on May 1. The numbers here were outstanding, particularly in China. Apple sold far more iPhones than the bears expected, in part because for days on end, we had heard about supplier surveys that suggested Apple would have an astonishing shortfall. No. Just like we saw with Facebook and Amazon, the negative rap on Apple turned out to be bogus. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. All of the analysts who fretted about how Apple's best days are behind it crashed right into the company's burgeoning service revenue stream. Suddenly, you had everyone talking about Apple like it's got some sort of fabulous razor, razor blade business model. Rather than being a slow boat hardware story, those who hated the stock reluctantly had to admit that it was maybe a much better narrative. Oh, and Apple's $100 billion buyback didn't hurt either. The stock skyrocketed immediately. Then it got a second win from Warren Buffett, who it turns out was buying Apple the whole way down in the first quarter. We got through the gauntlet with flying colors. And given how many companies are touched by these three, I'm talking about the semis, data centers, my favorite, the cloud kings, e-commerce plays, the social media brigades, the whole technology cohort came back to life. Of course, these groups would have been taken out and shot if the big picture, the macros we call it, had been troublesome. But last Friday, we got a terrific employment number that gave strong growth without much inflation, and that was confirmed by some benign producer and consumer price index numbers yesterday and today. Now, when we get this kind of confluence of positive earnings surprises and low inflation, the market does tend to go higher. But the issue here has been that all of the talk of trade wars have been scaring people away. With President Trump acting a lot more diplomatic, there's reason I was the first guy to publicly claim that he might be gunning for the Nobel Peace Prize in Korea. 
We now have a sense that maybe, just maybe, he'll come to an accommodation with the Chinese on trade, too. So let me give you the bottom line here. We saw it with Facebook. We saw it with Amazon. We saw it with Apple. This rally is about converting the unbelievers. As the bears became bulls, this market suddenly got its mojo back. Now the real fear on Wall Street is not of losing money. Instead, they're hashtag FOMO, afraid of missing out on the rally. And without any big earnings reports on the horizon, you can't blame the skeptics for changing their minds. When the bulls stampede, you either join the rush or you get trampled. The second question. Hi, Jay. My name is Raj. I'm from Montclair, New Jersey. Big oh. fan of the show. Thank you, Raj. Uh, my question is regarding Kansas City Southern. Um, freight volumes are up, but we have a NAFTA decision looming. So what's your take on KSU? It is the one that is most levered to NAFTA uh, because it does have a, a gigantic trunk line that comes up from Mexico. It is an incredibly well-run uh, railroad. I would like to hedge my bet and go, I think, with... Uh, with Norfolk Southern, which had a beautiful number. Uh, Squire's done a great job, and I won't have as much NAFTA worries. That's my plan. Yes, sir. Booyah, Jim. My name is Demetrius Meliores. I'm here with my son, a young investor. He's just started investing. Uh, and we consider ourselves citizens of Cramerica. Oh, thank you very much. My question has to do with Action Alerts plus the bullpen. Yes. When a stock has gone below the bullpen initiation price, uh, why don't the why doesn't the initiation price reset and what would cause you to not initiate at that time, not to take action? That's a, a great question. Well, I have to address that on Tuesday's conference call. I think that a lot of times what happens is the facts are changed and I should update. I should up the bullpen, uh, update the bullpen more often. Uh, Lockheed Martin, we liked it. They reported a quarter that was light on cash flow. Uh, so we decided to go the other way and, and we went with Textron. So I think the issue is that the facts change, but I will certainly address that next week. And I thank you for subscribing and being a member of the club. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Raymond Yu from Oyster Bay Cove. All right. If interest rates stabilize or even drift a little higher, do you think more mortgage REITs such as Annalee have bottomed? Uh, those I don't like, and I don't like them because I don't know what they really own. Theoretically, they should bottom, but we don't know exactly how they're positioned, and that is the problem with that. And I want to throw in that the mezzanine uh, interest rate plays are also similarly too opaque for me. I'd rather not be there. All right, this is what fear looks like. Fear of missing out, that is. How astonishing. Well, man, buddy, today, if it's good enough for the funniest woman in Hollywood, Tiffany Haddish, could it be good enough for your portfolio? I'm talking to Groupon CEO after earnings to see what's ahead. Then the four horsemen of the big pharma have been wandering the wilderness. Can the group find its way? I'm going to investigate. And why isn't the market more fearful of a spike in oil here? I'll tell you what's behind the action in the commodity. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Everybody's like, Tiffany, you're a celebrity now. Why do you still use Groupon? Aren't you worried that people will think you're cheap? Shut up, Amber. I can't stand you sometimes. Groupon makes me look good. 
Has Groupon finally found a marketing strategy that works? I love those Tiffany Haddish hats. And they seem to be paying off. The online marketplace that offers you huge local deals reported yesterday morning. And while the numbers look very strong, the action has been kind of confusing. We're going to make some sense of it tonight. We got a clear top and bottom line beat. The stock opened up more than 10% yesterday. Then Groupon gave back some, almost nearly all the gains. But today it bounced right back. It's climbed 6%. So does this rally make sense? Let's check in with Rich Williams. The CEO of Groupon, the man who's reinvented the company. He had a better sense of how this company's doing and where it's headed. Mr. Williams, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks for Good having to see me. see it, Rich. Good Thank to be you here. so much. Have a seat. All right. First, everyone on my staff loves Tiffany. Okay. So that was actual, right? The initial, yeah. the initial uh, contact point was she was talking about it and you didn't even know she used it, We right? had no idea. Look, I was as surprised as everybody else. Yeah. I, I had all of a sudden just literally hundreds of people sending me this clip. Um, and uh, you know, I, I called my PR guy and said, "Hey, you, is this real? Is this absolutely real?" And, and uh, you know, he did a little bit of checking, and, and it, we were we were blown away. I mean, she is a literal top one percent customer for us, and, and completely genuine at the top of the pile, uh, and a true super fan. And, and it just snowballed from there, and uh, and we've had an amazing run with her. It's been great. What I find interesting is, is that even in the ads, what yeah. she is displaying is the yeah. vast platform that you now yeah. have. I mean, whether it be uh, a, a, the gym or a hotel, but also you should tell, tell us about uh, Major League Baseball yeah. and, and about a course horse, which I love too. Yeah, I, you know we've been uh, you know we've been on a bit of a tear on the partnership side here lately, and a big piece of it was a couple quarters ago. You know, we when we stepped back and we we looked at what we were doing, we said, okay, we we know that getting great brands, great inventory, more small businesses on the platform as fast as possible is incredibly critical. So why are we trying to do it all on our own? What we have an amazing asset of 50 million active customers that a lot of these other companies and brands don't have. Right. But we can open up our platform to them, give them access to those 50 million people, and we can bring that inventory to our customers who are looking for it. So we, since that, that strategic decision a couple quarters ago, we've just been on a roll. As you, as you point out, we, we brought on uh, you know, Major League Baseball, right. and we're now half of Major League Baseball. We're, we're bringing on their, their tickets, not just discounted tickets, full-price tickets. Because right. um, a big piece of what we do is help people discover what's happening in their neighborhoods and around. And well, but when I'm on the Facebook call, Sheryl Sandberg yeah. says, listen, we're laser-like focused on local. Yeah. You're local. I mean, how do you go up against an alpha like Facebook? I think, you know, this has been an interesting space and, and lots of people have tried to play uh, as we play in the local space. And, and we've seen almost all of them fail. Um, and, and a big advantage that we've had is we've we've built a lot of competency and we've built some tools. We have a lot of software uh, and a lot of data from selling a, almost a billion and a half Groupons on how to connect with small businesses in a way that works for them, in a way that can help them grow, uh, in, a, in a way that drives transactions for them. And I think most of the other platforms out there that have tried have really been ad platforms, and they've missed that piece that a small business wants so badly, which is, I want to sell stuff. I just don't want to have my name out there. I don't want a billboard. I want to sell stuff, and that's what we do. Now, uh, I was checking Groupon this morning. Yeah. Now, you have artificial intelligence. I don't think it's as yeah. good as I, I... I'm going to Long Island this week. I'm going to the okay. beach, and you actually had deals at the beach. Now, I don't know. That that would be super artificial intelligence, yeah, yeah, but, no, that's pretty but good. you are using... You have machine learning. We are. We, you know, it's, it's been a part of, of our business from the very start um, because even in the early days as we started to expand the marketplace, we had to try to find the needle in the haystack for someone. And, all the, and that sea of thousands of things to do in a city, 
We had to find the one that was most interesting for you. We've now taken the machine learning and AI side in completely different directions and, and are using it now really heavily in, say as an example, in customer service where we're using chat bots, we're using uh, all of our, the folks that are on the phones and working with, with our customers as ways to tune it and they're, they're taking active roles and making it really smart so that we can help people find answers to questions really fast and without having to pick up the phone, without having to chat with the rep unless there's something really complex. So we're, it's all over our business and a huge I, part of what we do. In my Twitter file, I asked whether people use it, many, many people. Yeah. But a universal theme was that customer service was really, really good. That's great to hear. Now, uh, there were some people who did not like the trajectory of regular Groupon customers saying it, it, it dropped off a bit. Yeah. But you explained to people that Groupon Plus, uh, you're trying to kind of uh, augment or upgrade your own customers? That's right. So with Groupon Plus is, is you know, one of a, a number of initiatives that we're doing to, to really reinvent the customer experience and, and to say, a couple of years from now, how do you want to use Groupon? Do you want to have a voucher that you hand over to a merchant or do you want it to be completely seamless? Do you want it to be uh, just something that happens, that you get a better experience, you save some money, you may have something unique or special, and it just happens and it's delightful. And, and Groupon Plus is really a, a, an early rendition of that that happens to work really, really well. Um, and we're pushing it very hard. So we're, we are actively trading off selling vouchers for getting people introduced to something that can change how they experience a small business uh, and really win at a small business in a way that hasn't been possible. So we're, we're making that trade-off every day. I, I think it makes sense. That you mentioned seamless, but not in the context of that I'm about to ask yes. you, which is Grubhub. That, yeah. to me, is the most exciting partnership, even more than yeah. uh, than uh, the course horse. Talk to me about, about what you're doing with Grubhub. Yeah, so we, we just launched with Grubhub, you know, basically back in Q4 or the late part of Q3. You know, we had a food delivery business um, you know, order up. We sold some of those assets right. to, to Grubhub and struck a partnership in, in the process. Great deal. Um, it made a lot of sense, I think, for us and for our customers, for shareholders. Um, and we've just launched with a Grubhub integration um, very recently, and, and you'll see that expand. And I think it's amazing. And, again, we have 50 million customers looking for uh, things to do, looking for places to go when they're hungry, and they should be able to find places that have amazing delivery services, and it should be delivered by an amazing partner. And so we have that with Grubhub, and, and you'll see it expand. Well, I think that's the best of all. I didn't even get to international, which is him, but Rich Williams has reinvented this company, and I think it's a great buy. Rich Williams, CEO of Groupon. Thanks so much, Rich. Thanks. Dad Money's back in for the break. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. At a time when the market's making a major comeback, all sorts of groups that have fallen out of favor with the Wall Street fashion show suddenly getting their groove back. What about biotech? Specifically, what about the four horsemen of biotech, Celgene, Biogen, Gilead, and Regeneron? Last year, it seemed like these stocks were mounting a comeback. But lately, they've once again been sent to the glue factory. Biogen's down 14% for the year. Celgene's down 21%. Regeneron's down 23%. Gilead down nearly 9%. Why are these once beloved biotech stocks so darn hated? 
I think there's a lot of justice in the market's disdain for the group, actually. But at some point, you have to wonder if the stocks have become too cheap to ignore. First, though, let's talk about why these big biotechs keep stinking up the joint. Here's the thing. Even if Biogen and Celgene and Gilead and Regeneron were firing on all cylinders, they would still have trouble attracting much interest right now in this market. The economy is just too strong. When business is tepid, biotech is loved. When business is great, biotech is ignored. Who wants consistent, steady, eddy growth when the industrials can produce huge year-over-year earnings increases? That's only part of it, because in reality, the four horsemen of biotech are not firing on all cylinders at all. Each one has become uniquely troubled. Let's start with Biogen. For a long time, this company was all about the fabulous multiple sclerosis drugs. But for the last few years, Biogen's MS business has been fading. Too much competition. And the company's attempts to come up with major new blockbusters hasn't always gone smoothly. Sure, they had a giant hemophilia franchise, with Biogen spun off as BioVerative, a company that then sold itself to Sanofi for nearly $12 billion. Last year, they launched a treatment for spinal muscular atrophy. That's the leading cause of infantile death worldwide. And they're also working on an Alzheimer's treatment. But in December, we got some bad data on the Alzheimer's formulation. Very hard disease. Everyone's been trying to work on it one time or another. It hasn't been working. And while the spinal muscular atrophy drug has been, well, selling very well, the problem is that it's kind of what we call front-loaded, as patients need to take fewer and fewer doses over time. In short, Biogen ain't what it used to be. But the stock has also gotten a heck of a lot cheaper. All right, how about Celgene? Remember, it used to be one of my favorites before we decided it had paid too much for a particular drug company? Well, listen to this. After holding up much better than the other horsemen for years, Celgene just imploded last October. After a company, the company discontinued a clinical trial for the phase three Crohn's disease drug. When Celgene reported not that long after, the company slashed its long-term earnings forecast and the stock just got slammed. It really hasn't looked back since. Now, so far this year, these guys have tried to change the narrative. First, paying up for Juno Therapeutics, a cancer immunotherapy play that a lot of people asked about in the lighting round, and then announcing a partnership with Prothena to develop treatments for neurodegenerative diseases. If anything, though, the stock has been punished on these developments. Why? Because Celgene's last gigantic acquisition, the $7.2 billion purchase of Receptos in 2015, hasn't exactly gone too well. Receptos was all about one huge drug, but the FDA rejected that drug as a multiple sclerosis treatment in February. So people don't want to give Celgene the benefit of the doubt anymore. Then there's Gilead. This one's been more of a slow grind lower for the past few years, from mid-2015 to today. Gilead's lost roughly half of its value. The problem, Gilead's been the victim of its own success. From 2012 to 2015, the stock caught fire based on the strength of the company's cure, not chronic maintenance, but cure for hepatitis C. It was so successful that AbbVie and Merck rolled out similar products to get a piece of the action from both great companies there. And they've been undercutting Gilead on price. That's why the company's sales keep shrinking. They're likely to come down another 20% this year. When Gilead was flush with cash in 2015, they used that money to buy back their own stock rather than making intriguing acquisitions. They ended up paying pretty high, too. Finally, last year, they took over Kite Pharma, another stock many on the lightning round asked about, to get in on the cancer immunotherapy space. But it's going to take years before any of Kite's drugs could potentially hit the market. In the meantime, Gilead doesn't have much to offer you. That's why the company reported such a hideous quarter last week. A big, fat top and bottom line miss that pushed the stock from the low 70s to the mid 60s. It was shocking. Finally, there's Regeneron. 
One of the first stocks we recommended on the show in 2005, back when it was under $5. At its peak in 2015, Regeneron was trading at $557. That's right, $557. But this is why I always say that bulls make money, bears make money, but hogs, they get slaughtered. Because since then, it's plummeted to $289. The run in Regeneron was all about ILEA. That was the revolutionary macular degeneration drug. Still makes up about 60% of the company's sales. Now, ILEA's growth has slowed. But the big fear is potential competition from Novartis and Roche. The company's been trying to find their next big thing. They had an interesting anti-cholesterol drug where they partnered with Sanofi. But it's been a bit of a disappointment. And that's in part because of competition from Amgen. But also because it's been hard for a lot of doctors to figure out what to do with it. Even though I think it's a great drug. Still, the company just announced a new plan that could jumpstart sales by lowering the drug's price. It's an awareness program. Regeneron has a new eczema treatment that was approved last year. So far, the sales of this one haven't been as strong as I'd like. Still, there's a lot going on in the pipeline, including a promising skin cancer drug that's in phase two. Regeneron has a lot of shots on goal here. The main virtue of the four horsemen, though, they're incredibly cheap. Biogen sells for less than 11 times next year's earnings, selling for eight you only have for 10. Regeneron's a little more expensive than 14 times earnings, but you get what you pay for. And you know what? Cheap matters. This is the reason Biogen, Celgene, and Regeneron held so much better than you might have expected after the most recent quarters, even as the results were almost universally panned by the analysts. So, yeah, the four horsemen of biotech aren't the growth powerhouses they used to be, but they're trading like the world is coming to an end. At least in the case of Biogen and Regeneron, the numbers just aren't that bad, people. And, of course, growth could still reignite with the right combination of new drugs in the pipe. Bottom line, these big biotechs are hated because they've lost all the characteristics of great growth stories. And that would bother me, except that they trade like value stocks. I think Biogen and Regeneron are worth checking out right now. Gilead and Celgene have made big long-term bets on cancer immunotherapy, but it'll be years before we know if those bets will pay off. I say no thank you, at least for the moment. All right, much more mad money ahead. Many relationships are built on trust. But is it lacking when it comes to this market and the oil futures? Then a key look inside the biotech sector. What can Biomarin tell us right now about the future of these stocks? Uncook the CEO. And a very special edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. Tomorrow. Kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. All right, Jim. Wow. What a show. <laughs> we threw everything at you we had. <laughs> Save some for tonight. You I'm always kidding. do. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. The iPhone is the best consumer product ever. Every time we raise the value for our shareholder, we raise value for our people. There's something about our stories that really transcends time in so many ways. Mad Money, invest in what matters. How can this market be so blasé about the spike in oil prices? Why don't we freak out when the price of crude runs up in response to tensions in the Middle East? First, I don't think the market is actually ignoring oil. When missiles fly back and forth between the Iranians in Syria and the Israelis over the somewhat peaceful Golan Heights area, it should be unnerving. If there's going to be a hot war besides the one in Yemen, Israel versus Iran sadly seems like the logical matchup. But here's the thing. The stock market knows that it can't necessarily trust the oil futures. Equity traders know that oil traders are a very skittish bunch. They take up crude on any and all tensions. Bye, 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 bye. 
They seem to know only one thing, buy oil and bad news. So the stock people have become suspicious of these big runs, especially when they're driven by geopolitical risk and not, you know, actual demand for oil. I think that's because we all remember the ridiculous spike in oil back in 2008, which ended up in a total collapse of the oil market. So for those of you who don't remember, let's go over what happened back then, because it's pretty instructive for this moment. While the U.S. economy had begun to fall apart in the year 2008, the global economy was still going strong, led by China. We knew there was demand for oil overseas. Now, the price of oil had been steadily rising for years going into 2008, but it was a gentle ascent. That all changed in February of 2008 when Venezuela cut off oil sales to ExxonMobil. Suddenly, crude surged into the 80s. Then in March, two major pipelines from Iraq were taken out by terrorists. Oil jumped to the 90s. In April, a Nigerian worker strike cut Exxon's production, taking 780,000 barrels a day offline. At the same time, a strike by Scottish workers took out half of the U.K.'s production, too. In May, Nigerian rebels blew up pipelines that took out another 600,000 barrels a day, while Mexico announced some production shortfalls at its biggest field in the Gulf. Next thing you know, oil's breaking out above 100 and flirting with 120. Then, on June 19th and 20th, Nigerian rebels shut down the Shell and Chevron pipelines. The price of crude blasted with 120. Finally, in the first week of July, with no real news, oil takes out 140 and briefly touches 147. But what happened after that shows you just how fragile, skittish, and easily manipulated the oil market is. Because the price of crude collapsed pretty much in a straight line all the way down to $31 on December 22nd of the same year. That is a spectacular $110 swan dive. Gasoline, which had gone to an average of $4.11 a gallon, was cut in half by year's end. Now, considering that both the whole way up and the whole way down, we were headed into the depths of the Great Recession, the entire pivot at 147 looks like it was pure manipulation. A lot of people felt that way. But it's also fair to say that higher prices simply met with little selling the whole way up. It was almost as though there was no spare capacity to sell. But, of course, that turned out not to be true. There was tons of spare capacity. The new supply just couldn't be ramped up fast enough. But when it did... The market collapsed. And that's what I think could happen here now. The oil market is terribly, terribly inefficient, and supply chains are provided only by the short sellers who then cover when no oil comes to the market. There's not enough time to find real sellers, or they're all holding out for higher prices. Either way, investors in the stock market know from this lesson not to trust these spikes. We learned that in 2008. Oh, how about damage to the economy? It wasn't really clear how much damage the oil spike did back then. There was so much other noise. But cars certainly get a lot more gas mileage now than they did a decade ago. As Phil LeBeau told me today on Squawk on the Street, $5 is the new $4, and we're nowhere near $5. So sure, oil's gotten up there, no doubt about it. But we know the futures aren't necessarily the real deal. And that's keeping investors in the stock market from panicking out as we watch the price of crude climb inexorably higher. I think that's the right attitude. Let's take some questions. Let's go over here. Hi, Jim. Hi, how are you? I'm good. My name's Ann Kane. I'm from West Milford, New Jersey. Okay, thank you and for coming. So I have a question. Um, I want to know how you think the changes in Ford's production plans will impact the stock prices. Well, I think that, uh, it, first of all, it's a great question because the Ford 150 is offline. We don't know how many days. It is the, uh, the really, by far, the best, most profitable thing that Ford sells. I think that uh, what's going to happen is the stock will probably do nothing, but only because it's down so much. It is, by the way, the cheapest stock in the S&P 500 on earnings. But that's because a lot of people feel the earnings are going to be down. I say you can't touch it. 
It's just maybe a value trap. We don't know what's going to happen. But it was bad news about the F-150. Thank you for that question. Yes, over here. Hi, Jim. My name is uh, Sean Kane from West Milford, New Jersey. Also. Okay. Ooh, um, right. I have a, a vehicle question also. Uh, Freeport McMorrin, uh, call signs FCX. Yes. Um, how do you think that they are poised with the increase in demand for electric vehicles? Um, do you think that that stock still has room to, uh, to head upward? It's still much more controlled by uh, Chinese demand. That's by far the biggest market. That last quarter was just horrendous. They missed on every line, and they told negative stories about political consequences. I was shocked at how bad it was, and the stock has not come back. I cannot recommend that stock. That quarter was that terrible. But thank you for the question. Over here, sir. Hey, Jim. Dan from the suburbs outside Philly. Excellent. Um, way to go, Eagles. Yep. Go, Birds. I know. Crazy. Hey, Jim, any sectors out there that have been lagging that you think might be an opportunity for investing now? Well, I still think, you know, look, I, I've got to tell you, I keep on getting drawn to the airlines because I don't think they're that bad. But we need to have just one upside surprise would ignite that group. And, you know, the one that I like is the one that's unfortunately had that tragic accident, Southwest. I think that one's going to come back. That's a very well-run company. So that is where my thinking is. But remember, I am a fang guy. And those are not being left behind. All right. It's all about trust. Sure, oil's up there, but the future's not necessarily real. And that's keeping the market from tanking. I say stick with Kramer. The earnings are relentless and the schedule is grueling. But Kramer has burned the midnight oil and he's ready to run the gauntlet to find you a raging bull market. Powerful executives, scores of tough questions. All week, Kramer sits down with some of the market's most influential C-suite players. Join Mad Money on air and online for must-see interviews you can't afford to miss. It is time! It's time for the Light Room! Good morning, Brad Parkles, one of the assistants. I'm going to have my voice for the first time. I'm going to have a different way you play the sound. And then the lightning round is over, and I've got some guests here tonight, so let's start over here. Go Hi, ahead. Jim. Allison from New York. How are you? All right, how are you? Good. Bofi, hold or accumulate? Oh, geez, I would just hold that. It's had a pretty big run. You know, I do like the majors more than that. Yes. Booyah, Jim. Nick Booyah. from New York. Melco, MLCO. No, no, come on. We like we like MGM. We want a little, little bit less uh, beta, so to speak. Yes. Good evening, Jim. This is Joan from Westchester, Pennsylvania. Okay. My question is about Verizon. Should I buy, hold? No, you can hold it. It's at 47 bucks. I think it should go up to 50, 51. The stock's been on a little bit of pressure because rates went a little higher. I like it. Yes. Hi, Professor Kramer. Thank you. This is Paul from Brick, New Jersey. I wanted to ask you, we've seen uh, Chipotle kind of peek its nose out of the house of pain yeah. in the last couple of weeks. And I know uh, maybe you could give us some insight as to whether that looks like a trend or a blimp. I think it's for real because I really like this guy, Brian Nickel. He's a little too, you know, he's very polished. He's out of, uh, uh, look, he's out of the Taco Bell world. Uh, but you know what? That's exactly what they need. They need discipline. He had a good conference call. Yes, sir. Hey, Jim, Andreas from Hoboken. What do you think about Oracle? Uh, you know what? I think Oracle's fine. They got a good buyback, whatever, but I still favor Salesforce. I like Cloud Kings, and Oracle is not a Cloud King, even as I think they think they are. Yes, sir. Hey, Jim. My name's Chris from Penn State. Going to the Lions. What's your take on PayPal? 
I think PayPal's one of the best in the show. I had Dan Schulman in for teaching this Saturday. I've got to tell you, the things he said were just incredible. I would look at the video. I think PayPal goes much, much higher. Yes. Hey, Jim. Uh, Bob from Mawa, New Jersey. What a... What do you think about uh, Raytheon, buy, sell, or hold? I think Raytheon Chapel Trust owns I think that it's one of the best, unfortunately one of the best names, because everybody needs business. That's just un- unfortunate, but that's the world we're in, and that's what Raytheon has. And I think the defense stock, uh, after a sell-off, is the right place to be, and Raytheon's the best in show. Yes, sir. Hey, Jim. Richie from Park Slope, Brooklyn. And by the way, it's, really? so, it's, yeah, and it's so great to be here to see this show live. One of my neighbors. He's <laughs> a neighbor. I love it. All right. Uh, my question is about uh, Tallgrass Energy Partners. It's an LP with about a 10% dividend. I know, but, sir, I don't. You know that we've seen a lot of, we've seen a lot of distributions cut in the last few weeks. And I fear Tallgrass because of that. I know it doesn't look like I, we should worry about it, but that group has become torture. So I'm, I, that's a house of pain. I'm not going there. Yes, sir. Hey, Jim. George uh, Parentesis from Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey. Okay. What do you think about Mallinckrodt? Nope, nope. I know they had a better than expected quarter, but I got to tell you something. I am as worried about Actar sales as everybody else, and I've been staying away from that one for 30, more, 30 points. I'm not getting near it now. Yes, sir. Thank you. Jim, how are you? Long-time viewer, first-time speaker. I Thank just wanted you. to ask you about uh, if it's a good time to short Roku just because of increased competition. Hey, hey I don't recommend shorts in the show, I have to tell you. I thought that Roku uh, had a very good quarter. The numbers were amazing, but I do know that Amazon is coming in, which is why I'm concerned and why the stock went up and then came back down, even though the numbers look really good. It's a good question. Yes, yes, ma'am. Hi, Raquel from Tenafly, New Jersey. How are you? I am fine. How are you, Raquel? Good, thanks. My question is on Scott's Miracle Grow, which hasn't delivered on its uh, promises. Well, you know, this is this is Scott's weekend. Let's give him that. Right now, the stock was up for a lot more at one point. But, uh, you know, a, a lot of the problem is is cannabis. People looked at it as a cannabis play, and it really, in the end, is a garden play. So, And the weather's been really bad for them. But I say hold here, not sell. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Elliot of from Tenafly. I'm a terrific fan of your show for oh, many thank years. You. Thank you. And uh, I'd like to know about McDonald's. And I think McDonald's is fabulous. I think Steve Easterbrook's got them doing cartwheels. It's fantastic. The franchisees love it. And most importantly, they are about to have two lines. One line is good. You can just tell uh, tell them ahead. On the, imagine the choice behind that guy says, hey, I want a cheeseburger. What? They have a cheeseburger. Now it's going to be right through. And I think McDonald's is a screaming buy. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Earlier in the show, we talked about this market's intense hatred for many of the big biotechs. But there are some players here that have been holding up better than the four horsemen. Take Biomarin, that's B-M-R-N, the maker of drugs for rare diseases, with a stock that's basically flat for the year. Remember, the others are mostly down. Here's a company that makes so-called orphan drugs. That's very expensive therapies for incredibly uncommon conditions. Biomarin has six drugs on the market, including a bunch of treatments for rare metabolic disorders. But by its very nature, this is a business that doesn't have a lot of competition. Meanwhile, at the end of this month, Byron's launching a new treatment for phenylketonuria. That's PKU, I'm going to call it because it's just a lot easier. It's a brutal genetic condition that requires lifelong management. That's great for people who suffer from the disease, and it's also great for Biomarin shareholders, as it could be a billion-dollar opportunity. So let's take a closer look with J.J. Biedemi, who's the CEO of Biomarin Pharmaceutical. Find out more about how the super innovative company is doing it and where it's headed. Mr. Biedemi, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, J.J. Hey, how are you? Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you. 
JJ, I think that your company is chronically underrated because uh, you have just delivered and delivered and delivered and have very big revenues, but you have a new drug yes. that could be approved. And I know in your conference call, you don't want to say it will be because there's no sure thing. How big is this drug? So, uh, yeah, so the drug is uh, going to address uh, this condition, PKU, that you mentioned, uh, initially only in adults. Um, and the adult PKU market between the U.S. and North America and Europe is about 26,000 patients. Uh, the current therapy on the market is actually one of ours, um, and it's about $150,000 per year. So if we price it at the same amount, this is, I mean, the market opportunity overall is close to $4 billion. Wow. So we only need to penetrate it by 25% to reach a billion dollars. Now, if you can explain to people, it's not, uh, you have to have clinics, you have to, yes. you have to teach people that there's this drug yeah. out there yeah. that's so incredible. Yes, that's a very good question in the sense that uh, although the market opportunity is very large, it would be a slow ramp uh, on purpose. We want to make sure that uh, clinicians are well trained on how to use the product. It's a relatively complex product to use in terms of you know, slow titration to prevent side effects. And uh, there are 125 clinics, PKU clinics in the US. We know all of them because we've been selling our other product to them. 35 of them have already used the product. Okay. <clears throat> so they are pretty well trained, but we need to train uh, the balance of them and that will take uh, place over several quarters. Do people know if they have this illness from early on? Yes, actually that disease since the mid 60s is actually diagnosed uh, at birth. Okay. Uh, because before there was diagnosis, because the, the disease has been managed so far thanks to a very strict diet mm -hmm. uh, that's impossible to follow when you're not a kid anymore. And, and, and before, before uh, newborn screening, uh, PKU was the number one cause of mental retardation in, in the world. And most PKU patients that were born before the 60s are in mental institutions today. Oh, my. So it's a pretty serious disorder. Well, you're also working on another one, uh, Valrox, for hemophilia yes. that you have some very promising opportunities yes. for, correct? So that is a very exciting product, <clears throat> different area, hemophilia A, also a relatively large indication, about 120,000 patients in the world. And uh, we are developing here the first uh, gene therapy for hemophilia A. We're trying to replace two to three injections intravenously every week by one injection potentially in the lifetime of the patient. One injection? Well, that's the, the goal. Right. Obviously, we don't have data that lasts a whole lifetime yet. Right. Uh, we only treated patients about, we're gonna give an update next week uh, uh, at the World Hemophilia uh, Federation uh, meeting uh, with two years of data. But, but in animals, we have data that show that the animals, once they're treated, the hemophilia is managed for their whole life, 10 years, right. you know. So we're hopeful that it will last several years. Now, if you have a drug like that, we've learned from Gilead that it's, look, we, we all want diseases yeah. cured, but uh, a chronic condition mm -hmm. tends to use more uh, medicine. Will this be a one and done, so to speak? So this actually could be a one and done, but the penetration will not be quite as fast as the Gilead penetration with that product, uh, because this is such novel therapy that you know, some patients are going to jump on it, but some patients are going to want to see several years of data before they get treated. So, so the market is not going to disappear after three years. It will take a while to penetrate. Well, this is going to be the most exciting year. I've followed your company for years. This is the most exciting year I've seen. Exciting, this yeah. is a big year for uh, Biomarin, and that means that this is probably the year that you, if you haven't looked at it, you should. That's JJ Bianamese, Chairman CEO of Biomarin, which is an incredibly inexpensive stock. And if you like these kinds of stocks, you want to buy, they have money's back after the break. 
Joe, booyah, Jim, congratulations on a great show. Mad Money is not a show about picking stocks for you. It's a show about empowering you to think for yourself. This is Bill from New York. Jim, thanks so much. Hey, Jeff, this is Curtis from North Carolina. I wanted to say thanks to you for creating Mad Money. Booyah. The man, the myth, the legend. The Wizard of Wall Street. This is Duffy from Philly, and I want to give a good booyah. You are the reason why we do this. You know me, when we're up this long, this far, this fast, I always say, come on, don't be too greedy, right? Maybe take a little something off the table. The market is really soaring. I don't want to get anybody to get hurt. I do like the fundamentals, but we don't like to be greedy in America. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Perry, and I will see you tomorrow. Mr. Kramer, absolutely love the show. We really appreciate you out there, man. Booyah to my kids, Emma and Aiden. They're in elementary school learning so much from you. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. I know you hear this all the time, Jim, but thank you, thank you, thank you so much. This has been my best year by far and away in the market. I just want to thank you for, you know, looking out for the regular guys out there. I am trying to teach people to be better investors, and I am doing my darn best. That's the goal here. Great to hear your voice and know that you're there for us. I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then.